We have a, a saying, a proverbial saying that you've heard many times, that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. And what we mean by that is that you need to see something with your eyes before you can accept that it really exists or that it really happened. Um, if I claimed that I bench pressed 300 pounds at the gym this week, why are you laughing? I don't understand. I, I haven't got to the punchline yet, but... What, what would it take to convince you? Uh, if I pull out a gym membership card and say, see, I got a gym membership card, would that be enough? Or if I had a 300 pound club t-shirt or something like that and wore that, would you, would, would that be sufficient or some plaque or, or, um, you know, a photo of me in workout clothes? That would do it, I'm sure. No, what, what would it, what would it take? Well, you, it would take you going with me to the gym this next week. And watching me bench press 300 pounds, which probably wouldn't still convince you because there would be some gimmick or some little sleight of hand or something. Um, you're, you, you have parents, you have kids, you, their room is a disaster, you have company coming over, and you, so you send them to go clean their room. And you know it's just a wreck, it's going to take them hours. Well, they're back in five minutes. Done! Got it cleaned! He said, after a big long sigh and a roll of the eyes, you say, okay, let's go see it. And you, let's see all of it, under the bed, behind the dresser, in the closet, beneath all the hanging clothes, in the drawers where you've just stuffed things. Let's go see it. Because you're not gonna, you're not gonna believe that they've cleaned the room in some incredible, uh, world record time unless you can see it. Seeing is believing. That's what we mean. And, but, but that's helpful logic. It really is. I mean, it's true in so many realms. But many want to take that often helpful logic and bring that over into our understanding of Jesus Christ. So we want to say seeing is believing. That you Christians, you believe that, that Jesus is God. That He exists eternally. That, that He died for sins. That He rose from the dead. That He that He has prepared an eternal home for those who trust in Him. That He is a that, that there is a place of eternal wrath for those who reject Him. How, how, how do you expect me to believe that? If if I could see Jesus, then I would believe. If I could maybe even just see a miracle of Christ, see Him perform some incredible deed or some sign, some 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 miracle, then I would, might believe. That's the logic. Because seeing is believing, but this morning's text shows that that logic doesn't hold up when it comes to Christ. Because the Pharisees, the religious professionals, the religious elite in Israel, they saw Jesus. They saw Him perform many, many signs and miracles and wonders. They, they, they were, were eyewitnesses to these irrefutable miracles and displays of divine power. And yet they would not believe Him. Their hearts, as the more they saw, their hearts only grew harder against Him and their hatred of Him only intensified. That's what we'll see, what we've seen so far, that's what we're going to see all the way until they nail Him to a cross. And so in a sense, it's, it's not those who see that truly believe, it's those who believe who, that truly and really see and we've been talking in our series that, that we, we want to see, believe, live. 
We want to see Jesus as He is and believe in Him so that He can have life in His name. And so that's what John wants for us. He wants to see Christ, to see His signs, to see His work, to see His person and, and, and His truth. And, and, and so that we'll believe. And that is part of it. It's not like our faith is based on... Uh, it just kind of just comes out of nowhere. No, it's, it's based on information. And so there is some truth that, that seeing is believing. We, we, we have to know facts. We have to see uh, the, this truth of Jesus Christ in order to believe. But when we believe, it's at that moment that our eyes are truly open so that we see the glories of Jesus Christ. You can know facts. You can, can know stories. You can know the Bible. You can know theology. But until... By faith, until you've trusted in Christ and what He has done to deal with the problem of your sin, you cannot truly see Him as He really is. And that's what we see in this long passage this morning. And we're kind of parachuting right into the middle of an episode that we started looking at last week. This healing of this, this beggar that was blind from birth. And, and so we're, we're jumping right into this story. And we're going to finish the story this morning. I do it a little... Different. I just want us to kind of read through the story. I'm going to make some comments. And then we're going to come back and, and, and tie some things together. So I apologize. There's no PowerPoint. We'd have no Wi-Fi. So if some of you are planning on playing games during the service, I'm sorry. Just out of luck today. Um, but uh, I, the, one of the few times that I prepared, I stayed up late to prepare PowerPoint. And then there's no Wi-Fi. So you got nothing. So let me just give you kind of the movement. I'll give you some little headings. This isn't really... So much uh, the exhortation part of the outline. But at least we got such a long section. I'll just kind of give you some headings as we read through it. But in verses 13 to 17, we see this man. I would say he's called on the carpet. He's called on the carpet. So verse 13, look at it with me. So they, that's probably the man's neighbors in context. What we looked at last week, the neighbors of this man. Brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. And Why? Why take him to the Pharisees? Are they, are they trying to get him in trouble? Are they trying to get Jesus in trouble? Why, why, did, why was that their instinctual response? Well, there's a couple of things. And one, it just shows the, the hold and the grasp that the religious establishment in Israel had on the people. This is, this is where you go. And this, this miracle was incredible. It was unheard of. Nobody had ever been in the history of the world been healed from congenital blindness. And so they want help understanding what they've, they've seen and, 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 and witnessed. And so they go to the Pharisees. But also, it's because of who performed the miracle. It's Jesus. This man, Jesus. And Jesus was already on the watch list of the Pharisees. They, they, they had, he had already had some run-ins with them, many as we've seen. And, and they've already rejected him outright. And the people know this, we'll see in just a moment. And so, the, so the, the, there's this sense of fear of being associated with Jesus. So it's better to just go, take this man to the Pharisees, let them deal with this guy who says that he was healed by Jesus before this turns into some major problem. So they take this man to Jesus Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Oh, oh no. Here we go again. A Sabbath day. We weren't told that initially in John 9 when the miracle actually happened. We weren't told that it's a Sabbath. John's holding that information until now. So the Pharisees, verse 15, again 
asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, again, as he said to the neighbors, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. That's it. That's what happened. So what? The Pharisees rejoiced with the man and they hoisted him on his shoulders and they celebrated and they rushed to find Jesus to give thanks to him for healing this man. No. All they heard as he's reporting that story and the little three parts to the story was violation, broken rules, sin. It's all they heard. It's all lost on them. The miracle that's just happened in their midst. All they hear was wrong. Some of the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's what they're obsessed on. Jesus has violated the the man-made rabbinic rules regarding the Sabbath in at least three ways. One, the, the, the rabbinic teaching, it's called the Mishnah, which is not something that's part of God's law. It's something added later by, by teachers in Israel and kind of codified into this book. There was a law against kneading, not kneading with a K. Uh, and, and so kneading dough or kneading clay. And so here, this is part of it. I mean, so he's, they, they look at what Jesus has done in making mud with his spit. Now don't picture like some big glob of mud that he's smearing over this guy's face. I don't think he stood there and spit for 30 minutes to make that much mud. It's just a probably a little quarter-sized piece of clay. But that's work. You broke the Sabbath. You needed. There's also restrictions on anointing. And Jesus anointed the man's eyes with that little bit of, of mud. There's also... Restrictions on healing. You could not heal a person on the Sabbath unless it was a matter of life and death. Blindness didn't fit that category. So three strikes at least. There may have been others that they had in mind. The Messiah. Just think about this. Just consider what what has actually happened. The Messiah of Israel. The only Son of God. Eternal God in human form is in their midst and He's Perform this miracle that's again never been done in the history of humanity. And they're obsessed about the violation of their little man-made rules. They're so distracted by their human convictions and their preferences and their rules and their traditions and their rituals. I just ask the question, Is can we as Christians have our own version of that if we're not careful. Do we, do we ever confuse God's rules, God's Word, with our rules, our preferences, our kind of man-made convictions, our traditions, our standards? Do we ever blur those lines and view other people and view God's work through that lens wrongly? Do we ever miss out on what God is doing right in front of our eyes because, because we're all in a tizzy about somebody's complete disregard for our, not biblical, but our, our man-made, and I'm not saying they're wrong and, and, and outright, but, they're, but our man-formed convictions and, and preferences and traditions and rules that we care so much about. Do we ever miss out on what the Lord is doing? 
But listen, it's not that Jesus forgot what day it was. It's not that he didn't have his watch on, he left home, and I, I had this experience the other day where I completely messed up, messed up on a time and when I was supposed to be someplace, and I got there about six hours too early. Um, it's not that Jesus was confused. He knew exactly what day it was. He didn't think it was Friday. He knew it was the Sabbath. And it's, it's not that he didn't know about the little rabbinic rule book. He knew, he knew about it. He knew. He just didn't care. <laughs> he doesn't care. He, he intentionally tramples all over these rules. He, he's not bound by the traditions and the rules of men. He's here to do the Father's will. He's instructing us here. What is at will? It's part of it. So the Pharisees reason, if Jesus broke the Sabbath, He's obviously a sinner, and if He's a sinner, then He can't be sent from God. So it's, it's done. It's a closed case. But there's debate. <coughs> Not all the Pharisees were of the same mind on this. There's this. So there's this little rift. There's this debate that kind of breaks out, even among the Pharisees on this point. But others said... Verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? I mean, how is that possible? If he's, if he, if he's such a rebel that, that just tramples over God's law, how could he possibly perform these miracles? Not to say that there aren't false prophets who work wonders, but this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. And so there was a division, the text says, among them. I wonder if this was Nicodemus was part of the others here. Remember back in John chapter 3, he admitted to Jesus that no one can do these things that you do unless he's sent from God. Even as an unbeliever, he just recognized, Jesus, this is different. And so here, here some of the Pharisees, maybe Nicodemus, maybe uh, Joseph of Arimathea and some others, that they're saying, this, is, this, doesn't, this doesn't seem right. And so they said again to the blind man, verse 17, what do you say about him since he has Open your eyes. And I think that's dripping with sarcasm there because we're going to see in verse 18 that the Jews did not believe that the man had been born blind and they did not believe that he had been healed. They're just just kind of chiding him. So since he opened your eyes, what do you say about the man? And he said he is a prophet. Doesn't say he's the Messiah. Doesn't say he's the Son of God. Doesn't say he's the Savior of the world. He doesn't have that awareness yet, but his initial conclusion is kind of like the woman at Samaria. Remember, when, when, when she's, she's questioned, she says, no man can do the things you do unless he's sent from God. I think that's how he's thinking. So he says, he's a prophet. He must be a prophet. They don't want to hear this. The Pharisees kind of like, don't confuse us with the facts. You know, just, we have this bias and we've got to support it. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received sight. There must be some mistake. It's not possible. There must be some kind of uh, mistaken identity, something like that. So they send for the man's parents. This is interesting, isn't it? They see if he will, if they will verify whether or not he was born blind and how he was supposedly healed. So this is a second kind of little scene in this movement through John 9. And it's this pressure that's applied to his parents. Pressure on the parents. Verses 18 to 23. So it's kind of like the Gestapo shows up at their door. 
And they take the parents to Jesus for interrogation. Verse, 9, verse 18, end of verse 18. They called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. There's no doubt about either of those things. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. And I love this. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Can you, can you believe this? I mean, this, is in, this is incredible on many levels here. I mean, one, one of the things we, we, we see in this exchange is we see this, just the gross depravity of the Pharisees here. In, in how they treat this once blind beggar's parents. Just think of what's happening here. How many years had these people agonized over their son's sightless condition? I mean, this is their own flesh and blood. This is their son that they loved and raised and was born to them. And what a crushing blow to bring a child into this world only to find that he can't see a thing. And, and, and to know that there's no hope that he will ever see. And so you just put yourself in the shoes of these parents. They've watched him grovel around and grope around in the darkness year after year after year. And he's had to resort to begging. And then one day, he runs into the house as a, as a, as a grown man now. And he says, Mother, Father, I can see. I can see. You would run through fire to thank whoever it was that made, them, made that possible. Just consider this humanness of this scene. But the, the, the Gestapo here, they're, they're putting this intense pressure on them. Interrogating them. So what, what about this fellow that supposedly made him see? And so the parents, we know our son was blind. We can verify that. How he sees, who did it, don't ask us. No, that's, again, it's hard to believe. They, they, they duck the question. He's of age, ask him. What it was of age meant he was at least 13 in a day. 13 in a day and older, you're considered an adult, you're able to testify for yourself, so we don't know the age of this, this man, but he's of age. But why do they hide the truth? Why do they put the pressure back on their son? It's because they're scared. Because they're scared, and they have good reason to be, as we see. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. We talk, we've said this throughout John when that, that is used, the Jews. That's kind of an official designation for the Jewish authorities, the establishment and representative of the nation. But again, these were Jews who feared the Jews and that, the authorities. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Notice that. He, they already agreed. This was already settled. 
They're not, they're not inquiring of the blind man. They're not inquiring of the parents because they're genuinely interested in what they have to say, trying to figure this out. Man, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Son of Man, Son of God? No, they're not. They've already settled the matter. They come with this preloaded spiritual bias against Jesus. It's done. They, there's, there's no question about it. And there's no miracle that Christ can perform that's going to break them free from that. So they already decided, already agreed, if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They already ruled on him. He's not the Messiah. And if any person is found agreeing with or aligning themselves with that heresy, (coughs) he's gone. He's out. Now we hear put out of the synagogue and we think, oh, poor them. They got kicked out of the church. They, can't, they got to find another place to worship on Sabbath. It's not that. This is, this is a major, major deal. And it's hard in our culture, in our context to, to, to decipher this. I'm sure there's a version of this in Senegal that, that, that in, in, in many other cultures that this is a, still a reality, more tribal cultures to be to be put out of the synagogue was to be completely cut off from the the social religious financial life of Israel they were they were an outcast they would be outcast the people could not could not would not socialize with them people couldn't couldn't sell them goods they couldn't they wouldn't buy goods from them there so it's basically amounts to complete For a poor family, which most people in Israel were poor, it was complete financial, social ruin. This is this is what it meant. It it would it would be awful. It it could potentially affect the family for generations because they would they would be associated with this this ostracism, this being of outcasts, and they couldn't escape to the next town because the rabbis in that town would honor and 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 uphold the. The verdict from Jerusalem, so there was no place to go. It was devastating. So these religious bullies put this unbelievable pressure on this man's parents, and they cave. They're not truthful because they're afraid. So Pharisees bring back the beggar to question him some more. This is the third movement through here. And, it, and I would just say, he's recalled like a witness. He's, the witness is recalled, rebuked, and removed. Recalled, rebuked, removed. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. There's different ideas of what this is meaning. In Joshua 7.19, you see the same expression. And I think this is a reference to that. And in that context, it clearly means tell the truth. Align yourself with God's side. God is truth. Tell the truth. Agree that Jesus is not who He says. Admit your guilt in siding with Jesus. For we know... We know for a fact, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this man is a sinner. And so they're really tightening the screws on him now. Verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't even know the man. I've never seen him in my life. I've only heard his voice. 
I, I don't I don't know anything about his character. I cannot cannot testify to his morality. I have no idea if he's a sinner. There's one thing that I do know that though I was blind, now I see. That's it. I can only tell you what I know, and this is all I know. They said to him, verse 26, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Start from the top again. Just, just tell, tell us, tell us again what happened from the beginning. And the beggar, he's had enough at this point. And so his reply, it just, again, it just drips with sarcasm here. Verse 27, he answered them, I've told you already. I've told you about the mud. I've told you about the anointing of the eyes. I've told you, wash, told, told me to wash and then I could see. I told you all of this. Nothing's, nothing's changed in my story. He would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then listen to this. Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> Are you asking because you've had some kind of change of heart? Now, now you're interested in being this, being a Jesus follower? Is that why you're asking? And this is, this is, this, they come unglued. This is more than they can take. Verse 28, and they reviled him. They just, again, this isn't just some punk just, you know, on the internet, social media, just, you know, bullying, that kind of bullying. This is the, this is the religious elite of the land reviling this man. That stands, that sticks in the community. He's a marked man now. They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, I mean, this man, this, this fellow, they can't even speak the name of Jesus. It's like poison on their lips. They won't do it. For this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, if you remember back in John 5, Jesus, Jesus just obliterated this whole Moses hope, this Moses faith of the religious leaders. And back in John 5, verse 45 and 46, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So, he's already dismantled this argument. But here, this is there. Oh, we're of Moses. I don't know about this, this man, this Jesus guy. Verse 30, the man answered. He shows tremendous boldness here and courage. to these Again, these religious bullies. Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. This illiterate beggar, who who he knows more than these self-proclaimed experts in Judaism. Ha! This is amazing! And it goes on, verse 31, We know, we have this common knowledge among this beggar, along with the Pharisees, along with the religious leaders. We know, we all know this. This is common knowledge of the Scriptures. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. We all know this. This is just common knowledge. But, oh, the Pharisees get this point. And it just pushes them over the edge. They are in a rage now. It's white, hot anger at this man. Who is he being lectured by this loser? Which is how he was viewed by all. Verse 34, they answered him, You were born <coughs> in utter sin. That's just a reference. And we talked about this last week. This is the only way people view those who were born with some, some disability, some, something like blindness, some condition. It must be because you sinned or your parents sinned. You were born in utter sin. You're as bad as they come to have been born like this. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. They put him down. They put him out. They cut him off from life in Israel. I mean, this man who had, who had always been always been excluded from life in Israel because he was this blind man who had to have been a sinner or his parents sinned, was resorted to begging, was always an outcast, was always estranged from the community. He finally had his sight restored. He was finally able to be part of life in the community. And, and then all of a sudden, already, he's cast out again. What's next is just fantastic. (laughs) This is such a beautiful picture. And this is the fourth movement where this man is sought by the Savior. He's sought by the Savior. Verse 35. Jesus heard that he had been, that they had cast him out. And having found him, so Jesus got word that he'd been expelled from the community, from the synagogue, and he went searching for him in Jerusalem, and he found him. This is, I just think of Luke 15.4. What, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? I mean, Jesus is looking for this man. And I would just say to you, brothers and sisters, Jesus still looks for people today. He is still initiating. He's still searching. He is still looking for sinners to forgive. He is still looking for the downcast to give hope. He is still looking for the blind to give sight. He is still looking for the condemned to bless. And if you are here this morning, brothers and sisters, and you're listening to this sermon, it may be because Jesus is looking for you today. You didn't just wander in here on your own. It wasn't just chance. It wasn't accident. Whether it's your first time or your 1,000th time to be in this church. Maybe God has you here for a purpose. And this is part of His seeking you, drawing you to Himself. Open your heart to that possibility this morning. And I, and I know Christians, we, we have this in kind of our jargon. that, And in a part of our, maybe as we share our testimony, we say that we found God at some point in our life. But that, that isn't really accurate, is it? I mean, that's not just from this story. We know from Scripture. And I know what, I know what people mean when they say that. But it's not that, that, that God has ever been disoriented and that we've had to go looking for this poor, lost God who's kind of wandering the streets of the universe till we can find Him. That's not it at all. He, he found us. We are the ones who were lost without Him. 
And he moved toward us in love. That's the whole, that's the incarnation. That's the, the, the work that he does in drawing men to himself that we've seen in John already. The initiative in salvation begins with God. It's his heart is moved out of compassion for sinners. And he comes to us. I mean, the very next chapter, where Jesus goes next, and John 10, which is this great chapter of the, the, the Good Shepherd. Jesus is a good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep, and he says, What I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and they must come also. They will hear my voice. I'm seeking them. I'm going to them. And Jesus is just saying, I, It's just a beautiful picture. He heard he's expelled, and he went and he found him. He spoke to him and he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 35. And he answered, Who is he, sir? That I may believe in him. There's willingness to believe, but he's still in the dark. He's still ignorant. He doesn't, doesn't, again, there's facts. There's information that must be believed. He doesn't have it yet. Jesus said to him, You have seen Him. And it is He who is speaking to you. What a moment. And He said, verse 38, Lord, I believe. Not Jesus is not a man anymore. He's not a man who healed Him. He's not a prophet. He says, Lord, I believe. And He Worshipped him. This is the moment when his eyes are fully open. This is what we say. Believing is seeing. He sees him. In an instant he gains spiritual eyesight. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. That the God who said let light shine out of darkness. In this moment God shone into his heart. And gave him the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right here. This is the moment of conversion. And this moment, his eternal address changes from hell to heaven. Right here. I mean, we, we have, brothers, sisters, friends, you have, many of you have your own salvation moments. And I know it may not be as, you probably weren't healed from blindness that you had had from birth. And, and this is what God used. But it was nonetheless, it was, it was a miracle of the new birth. And your eyes were open. I had my moment at 1545 East Stone Road in Wiley, Texas, sitting in my bedroom when I was a sophomore in high school. And I had grown up and around the church and in the church, and I'm sure I'd heard the gospel a thousand times and sat through, you know, evangelistic messages and 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 but there was no altar call, there was no there was no sermon. I know the Spirit had been drawing me and had been working in, in, in my life without me knowing it for, for weeks and months before that. But I just, I just, I knelt beside my desk in my room and, and I begged and asked God to forgive me, my sin. And I just rest the full weight of my confidence, the confidence from my eternal soul. I, I realized the seriousness of, of what it was that I, 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 was this eternally created being and I would live forever one way, one place or another. And I rested the full confidence of my soul on what Christ had done. His death for my sin. 
that He rose from the dead, that He lives, that He offers life to all who believe in Him. And it was in that moment, I, again, my eyes were opened. I was alive in a way I had never been alive before. I was changed. And, and nothing else mattered after that. And nothing else mattered. And, and since that moment, I, I, I've never been the same. I haven't gotten over it yet. And I don't think I will for eternity. Um, and so for this man, all of a sudden, being ostracized by his community, being excommunicated by the Jewish leaders, doesn't matter. <laughs> I can't go to worship in the synagogue anymore. Who cares? I don't mean that he was flipping about it, but he is worshiping Jesus Christ the Lord. He worshipped him. This isn't isn't simply about, I've been looking for you, Jesus. I wanted to thank you for healing me. That's not what this worshipping him is about. It's not just writing the thank you note. No, this is seeing Jesus as God, honoring him as God. His word means to bow low, and I don't think that's figurative. I think he dropped to his knees in the dirt, at his feet, and worshipped Christ. And and, and oh, I just was thinking about this week. My imagination runs wild here. Just trying to... I wish we knew the identity of this guy. Uh, what did, what, who was this man in the early church? What church did he belong to? What, 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 how long did he live? What did the rest of his life look like? How many people did he lead to faith in Christ? How bold was he in proclaiming the gospel to sinners? How, how did this man who was outcast from the Jewish community, what was it like for him to be folded into this new family that was made up of nothing but outcasts called the church? How, how did that work? How did those relationships work? And how heartfelt was, was it when he sang to the Lord? When he prayed? I bet he didn't close his eyes when he prayed. <laughs> I'm just guessing. But... To sing, I know he didn't have this hymn, Amazing Grace, but oh, you know, there was a version of that. The amazing grace of God. I once was blind, now I see. Grace. Mm. Then we conclude in verse 39 to 41. And that what we see Jesus is we see Jesus the judge here, and what he's basically saying, you can't straddle the fence. There's no no fence straddling. Verse thirty nine. Jesus said, He says it to the man as but we'll see, there is others listening, including Pharisees that are standing nearby. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So he came so that the blind could see and so that the seeing could be blinded. Now that might sound strange, but I think you understand what he's getting to here. Jesus gives life, he gives light and life to the blind. And what he means when he says to the blind, he's saying those who are blind and they know it. They, they get, they admit their blindness, they admit their helplessness, they admit their neediness. And they look to Jesus alone for help. That's the blind who Jesus came so that they could see. 
But then those who, quote, see, and yet he's come so that they might be blind, those are those who proudly think they see, they're, 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 but they're clearly blinded from the glories of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of their self-trust and their self-sufficiency and their self-righteousness. They're blind. They think they can see, but they can't. They're deceived. So this is, Jesus makes this declaration in verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Now, I don't think they're really genuinely inquiring. Hmm, Jesus, would you be talking about us? I mean, their wording expects this negative answer. Surely you couldn't possibly be talking about us. If there's anybody in the world who has spiritual perception, it's us. We have the law of God. We know the scriptures. We know theology. We have the temple. We have the rituals. We have the traditions. We, we have the right place of worship. We have everything going for us. If anybody has light in their eyes, if anybody can have perception to see the things of God, it's us. Surely you're not talking about us. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, that was their boast, your guilt remains. As long as they persist in their pride and self-righteousness, and they remain in their sin and their guilt. Now, I think there's an implicit invitation there though. If you will, if you will just see the enormity of your sin, this is for us too. If you will see the enormity of your sin and your misery and your neediness and your blindness and and your inability to to please God on your own, the way then is opened up for forgiveness and light and life. That's 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 the other side of that coin. Spiritual pride is one of the greatest hindrances to people coming to Christ. It's pride. So if they think somehow that you think somehow that your good works, your good deeds, your morality, your you know, your church involvement, whatever it is, your your goodness is somehow going to commend you to God. That your good works will outweigh your bad, and this is what they're doing. They don't see their need for their Savior. But the starting point for salvation is to admit you're a sinner. And you need Jesus to save you. And that's something the Pharisees, they're not willing to do. Well, I basically exhausted most of our time just walking through the story. But it is a good story, isn't it? And it's not just a story. This is here for us to see the glories of Jesus Christ. This isn't, I know it's often used as this is a kind of a guide for witnessing. I once was blind, but now I see. And you don't have to know anything, but if you can just say that and, and, and talk about the change in your life, and I'm not discounting the, the sharing of your testimony, but the, your testimony isn't the gospel. Um, but, but testimonies are often helpful to share, just kind of more pre-evangelism than anything, just story of what God has done. And, but that's not the ultimate point of this passage. While it may be, may be helpful in, in talking about evangelism and sharing your testimony, the point of this is to show us the greatness of Jesus Christ. We want to see Him. We want to see Him. And so, just in the few moments that remain, I... Uh, the 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 one of the things that we one of the ways that we see Christ is we see him in the the division that Jesus brings. 
He, he brings division. The truth of Christ divides. So there's basically two sides. Again, there is no fence straddling. There is no neutrality here. There is rejection of Jesus and there is reception of Jesus. And we see both in, in high definition here in this account. Let me just say a few things of, of, about rejection. And I'm going to have to condense this greatly. This was supposed to be half of my sermon. Um, so I'm going to be kind of adjusting my wording as I go. But rejection of Jesus, if you want to take notes, this would be a good time here. Rejection of Jesus often hides behind the rags of religion. It often puts on this facade of religion and rules and rituals and morality. And, and this is what you think. When you think about spiritually blind people, you think about enemies of Jesus, those who oppose Him, those who are persistent and dogged in their unbelief, what do you picture? You, you picture some angry atheist or some addict kind of wandering the streets and his hard case. But when John shows us exhibit A of what unbelief looks like, he holds up the who's who in orthodox religion. They <coughs> say, this is the hardest right here. It's the hardest hearts. The Pharisees, because why? The Pharisees boiled life down to this. The whole purpose of life is religious observance. That's why life exists. It's rule keeping. God created man to observe the Sabbath day and other rules. And so Jesus doesn't fit that system. And so they, they can't help but reject him because it's just, he's immediately discarded because Jesus doesn't, doesn't fit. They're, they're blinded by traditions, rituals, rules, self-righteousness. And that's still a reality today. People can grow up in churches, even good churches, and become so bogged down in religious weeds that they, they completely miss the work that God is doing right in front of them. Many people, again, today, they reduce life down to be good, be, be good, go to church, got to have family values, you vote a certain way, live a certain lifestyle, dress a certain way, listen to a certain kind of music, avoid these things, do these things. And if that's your, if that's what life amounts to for you, then you're, 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 you're going to miss God at work right in your midst. You, you won't want anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ as He truly is. I mean, these Pharisees, they were fine with Jesus, the rule follower. Jesus, the good guy. Jesus, the, the, the teacher. Jesus, um, the, 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 that, that, they were okay with that Jesus, but they're not okay with the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. That doesn't fit. So I one, one implication of this is don't assume you know who's most likely to believe in Jesus. And we have this caricature, and, and, and so the, but, but look at the story. This is this illiterate, blind beggar. He's the kind of guy you go on the other side of the street to avoid him because he's weird. And you would never in a million years have thought that this would be the guy that gets it. That really understands the truth of God. You would, and then you would, you see these Jewish leaders though, and they're respectable. I know we, we kind of picture them with horns and, you know, this devilish grin. And that day you would not have thought that. These guys were, <coughs> were like on another level. Pious, moral, good standing, respectable in their community, knowledgeable. 
theological, educated, good guys, conservatives, family men. And yet, they're far, far from God. They are dug in in unbelief. Now, that is not to say that the gospel can't break through even to them. Because when you get in the book of Acts, you see that many Pharisees, many priests came to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ and were part of the church. So God is able to save anybody. That's certainly one of the implications. Another thing, alright, i got to get just a couple more. Rejection, rejection of Christ often claims to, to, to have this special knowledge. Those who reject Christ, they claim to know. They're not, they don't claim ignorance. They think they know, but they're self-deceived. You see this, this word know throughout this passage. The Pharisees, they know who Jesus is. They know what He's not. They're, they're not questioning at all. It's scientifically proven Jesus is not the Messiah. <coughs> they're not looking for more information. They're convinced. They're like Romans one twenty two, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they're, they're, the, they're the gatekeepers of the truth of God. And yet, they completely miss the truth. God in flesh, standing in their midst, working right in front of them. And I would just say, don't be shaken by those that speak loudly, that they, they know that God can't exist. They know that this Christianity thing is a fallacy. This is just ridiculous. It's fairy tale stuff. And they claim it academically, and they claim it socially, and they, they, they'll just try to discredit in every possible way Jesus can have raised from the dead. But they're, but they're self-deceived. And so don't be surprised. Don't be shaken by those loud, loud proclamations of knowledge. Uh, rejection of Christ, third, is fueled by pride. I mean, this is what it boils down to for them. And they have in, irrefutable evidence right in front of their eyes. Eyewitness, I mean, they are eyewitnesses to the power of Jesus Christ. And then, but we see this most clearly, the beggars teaching them about the scriptures and they just plug their ears and they say, we're not going to hear it. Who are you to teach us? And they cast them out. And this is the same thing. We've said this already. Pride continues to hold people in bondage today. Sin. This refusal to admit, admit our neediness for God. I got, my, I got it together. I got it. Self-sufficiency. Pride. Independence. Self-righteousness. Alright, the, 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 let me just jump down. The, the final thing I'll just say, the, the other is reception. There's this divide, there are those who reject Christ. And, and, and it also comes in more polite ways, like the parents. This indecision. They're, they're out of, because of fear, and fear is another thing that keeps people in unbelief. And it's just kind of, a, again, a more pleasant type of unbelief. But it's still unbelief. And, and they, 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 would, they, they, they chose to stay in the synagogue, but they are excluded from the kingdom of God. And so, alright, last thing. But the reception of Jesus, we see it with this blind man. The first thing I just say is that faith and sight begin with Christ. He is the initiator. We've said this already. It's by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. I praise the Lord, because if it wasn't for that, none of us would, would have eyes to see His glory. And then the last thing, and, that I, and this is what I want you to say, faith and sight that Jesus gives to us, it sets us free. Uh, 
It set this man free even before he's converted. I realize that there's progression in the story, but his eyes, as his eyes begin to open, as the, the, the fog begins to, to, to break before he, you know, is converted even, there's this, it's growing, the greater his awareness and understanding of Jesus, the greater his boldness is and his courage to speak the truth. And, and he's not, and then, and then he believes. He casts his lot with Christ and says, it's all, I'm, I'm all in, Jesus. He's not, he's not shackled to the synagogue. He's not in bondage to the fear of man. He's, he's free. You, you would, so, uh, sociologically, he's done. <coughs> in that community, he's finished. But, in his eyes, his heart, he, his soul is free. And he's bold. <coughs> Even when he's maligned and mistreated and cast out, he's free because he believes and he worships Jesus. His heart believes Jesus is better. In all his sorrows, in all his weakness, let, what is it, uh, without riches, I don't remember what the line is, but forget it all. Christ is better because he'll have none of those things. He'll have no comforts. He'll have no wealth. Christ is better. That's what he says. There's an illustration of this in Hebrews 10, and then we're done. Hebrews 10, uh, you can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Uh, the writer talks about um, what he calls the hard struggle of sufferings that these believers had endured. And then he says in verse 33, I think it is, that they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Sometimes they were the direct recipients of the suffering and the persecution. Sometimes they were just associated with it. For you had compassion, verse 34, on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So there are these, these early Christian believers, they're either in prison or they have everything taken away from them because they're, they're taking food to those in prison so they can survive their brothers and sisters in Christ. And what do they say? Let it go. I have joy because I have a better possession, a lasting one. Christ is better. This is the blind man. He, he just... Think of all that he lets go and he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him and he's free. Brothers and sisters, I, I long to know more of that freedom in Jesus Christ. I confess though, that there are still shackles that keep me. I still question, my heart still struggles to believe that Christ is better than everything. I look to other things for comfort, look to other things for satisfaction and, and, and delight and confidence and to help me with my fears and to... And, 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 and so, but, but brothers and sisters, pray for me as I pray for you. And I, I want, God, I want my heart to believe that you're better. I want to soar. I don't want to be bound to fear of man and to fear of the synagogue, whatever that version of it is for us. Let's pray. Lord, Lord God, I pray that you would overcome us with the greatness and the glories of Jesus Christ, that our eyes would be open wider than they ever have been before to see Jesus. For those that are in Christ, that we would have a growing, growing 
rapidly growing knowledge of Christ, that this might be a season of revival in our church, that we, we know Him and we want to know Him more than we ever have before, and, we, and you just open the floodgates and allow us to grow like crazy in our delight in Christ, knowledge of Him, love for Him, faith in Him. And for those here that maybe this is just sounds strange and this is a foreign experience, I pray that if they're here, I pray that them being here might be your drawing them. And that you would bring them, That you, if there's any person here today who comes in and they, and they have not trusted in Christ, their eyes remain in darkness, that you would help them to fall to their knees, confess their sins to you, ask forgiveness, put the weight of their confidence on Christ and what he accomplished. Lord, do it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.